You know what, it helps me, uh, and many of you who've been joining in on this for some weeks now, to begin each time we gather with a declaration of faith. So wherever you are making your connection with us today, one of our physical campuses here in Kindle, Gables, across the nation, around the world through Church Online, and soon to be Miami Beach, I would like for us to just join our voices as one and repeat after me. Nothing is too hard for God. Okay, take a breath, and let's turn the volume up a couple notches. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. Now soak that in for a moment, because that's why our prayers get answered. That's why even though the world is a hard place, and nations right now are going through hard things, perhaps your nation of origin, perhaps the nation you're joining us from, Hard things. Neighborhoods experience hard things. Maybe your neighborhood is in a hard place. People like us, we, we have hard things going on. Maybe you right now are facing a hard decision. It's not too hard for God. Maybe you're going through a hard valley. It's not too hard for God. Maybe you're dealing with me. I can be hard to deal with. You know, I was gonna say, ask my wife but she'll tell you without asking if you get. <laughs> you know, we all know the truth. You know, we can be hard. Life can be hard, but nothing is too hard for God. That's what we're talking. He has the power to get us unstuck and to take us to another level. So that's what we're praying for you today. Uh, the article was entitled, Cramming People Into Things. That's the article I saw, and it arrested my attention. Actual images of people trying to see how many people could they cram into stuff, uh, like first in a phone booth. Now, before I go on with that illustration, some of you are wondering what a phone booth is. That's where, that's a private space where people used to go before cell phones to have some level of, uh, you know. But at the time, actually these are, co-eds from Memphis State University, 1959, 26 of them crammed in, at least some part of their body crammed into a phone booth. Now, that was going on at the time. That's what young adults were doing for fun at the time. Um, the guys, not to be topped, they showed up in Life magazine. But, of course, they went in head first, being thinking People. How many can you get in? They did not top 26 on the women. Another thing that was happening at the time was car cramming. Once again, the ladies lead the way. How many women can you get crammed into a small car, filling it to overflowing? What could the guys do to try to top that one? How about outhouse cramming? Of course. Of course, outhouse cramming won't stay there very long. Uh, but then, th then there was tree cramming. You know, there were these large trees that had, and girls wanted to see, how many could we get up there? How many people could we cram in there? And then topping them all off was that video we saw from Tokyo. That's a for real. In Tokyo, space on a train was at a premium. So they weren't just going for the record to see how many people they could get. This is an economic necessity. They were trying to maximize efficiency and see that those people, they were actually hired. They were called pushmen. Pushmen were hired to push as many people in before the door closed, and that was doing their job. Now you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with church? What in the world does this have to do with spiritual life? We're gonna get there, but the woman that we're looking at today, if cramming people in mattered to anybody in the whole Bible, it matters to this woman. 
Joshua chapter 2, her name is Rahab. Rahab. And here's the scenario. Judgment Day is finally coming to the ancient city of Jericho. Okay, hold up. Wait a minute. Somebody's already thinking. So this is a message on judgment, Bill? You going to judge me? Well, yes to the first question. (laughs) This is a message on judgment from God. No to the second question. I'm not here to judge you, but what I'm hoping to do is that we can take a peek into this scenario, perhaps not unfamiliar to where you think consequences of guilt have you stuck. Or maybe you're wondering how somebody else keeps getting away with consequences of guilt that don't seem to stick to them too much. So there might be some new insight for somebody here today, but this is what I want us to see. What happens here? Because God has warned. In the storyline, God has warned for years this city, even centuries. Imagine that. Getting a century's heads up. Like when Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham, one day your people are going to come back to this land. It was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this very day. But he said, you're coming back to this land. And, uh, and then your descendants, between now and then, Abraham, your descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then after they're freed from that slavery, when your descendants are in their fourth generation, they will come back to this land. And this is the curious thing God tells them in Genesis 15, when the sins of the Amorites have reached their full measure. Hmm. Now, Amorites is a general term referring to all the people of the land, their inhabitants in that land. But the point is this. The God of the Hebrews is the God of heaven and earth. He's the giver and sustainer of life, the one to whom every living person will one day give account. And God is telling Abraham on the front end of this entire covenantal journey that one day the Amorites, who look like they've been getting away with stuff, they're going to face judgment for their sin. They will face justice. Justice day is coming. And that time of justice is now happening. That's what Joshua chapter 2 is getting us ready for. Uh, the judgment that is, will coincide with the fulfillment of God's promise to the people of Israel. He is going to establish them in the land of promise in one and the same motion that brings the hammer down in justice on the Amorites. Okay, so there's the scenario. It's a theme that Rahab, resident of Jericho, echoes in chapter 2, verse 8. Here's what she says. I know the Lord has given this land to you. And that a great fear has fallen on us so that all who live in this country, they are melting in fear because of you. We have already heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea and when you came out of Egypt. So the word is traveling. And what you did to Sihon and Og, they were just on the other side of the river, Two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Word is traveling. Justice is coming. And so when we heard of it, our hearts melted. And everyone's courage failed because of you. And then this is the part we're not supposed to miss. 
for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. In other words, this God isn't simply a tribal deity. This isn't another team mascot God that you create and then take along on your keychain. This God, the Hebrew God, the unique claim of the Bible God is that God is the God above all comers, above all others. And, uh, and that God is the one who is now moving and executing justice. And guess what? Using Israel as his tool, his instrument of justice. That's the scenario. And so it was that sense that was motivating her to ask for mercy before the court on the day of judgment. It's like she's got this Doppler radar reading, you know, in somehow, and she knows that the storm is coming and it's inevitable. I mean, it's judgment day, the day of consequences upon them. There's no escaping it. They are in the crosshairs of the incoming storm. And so she says, I mean, it's like she, uh, uh, you ever felt like um, your sin was about to find you out? Like when those blue and red lights are flashing in your rearview mirror and you're pulling over and you're now going to have to face the consequences of your own guilt. This was happening here. Verse 11, she says, please swear to me by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. She had just hidden the spies that Joshua had sent to kind of get a pulse on the land. She hadn't ratted them out. You know what she actually did? She hid them away. She was trying to be part of the allied effort here. And, and now she's looking for a deal to spare her family when the judgment storm hits. That's what she sees coming. So it really answers this question. What do you do when you feel stuck in the consequences of your own guilt? Because that's what she see, she's trying to figure out. So here's what she says. Give me a sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Looking for a safe place. Just like you do when the hurricane's bearing down. You want to get in the safe place. So from their visit, the spies, two of them that, that uh, Joshua had sent, they plainly see that God has been fearfully at work before them. The people know, already know, that justice day is coming. Now, sometimes, you know what, when we read stories in the Bible about judgment, it's, it's a cringe factor, right? And, and listen, just entering the story from where we sit, sometimes it can feel like it's just not fair that such severe sentence should be sanctioned by God. How can this be happening? Because here's what was about to happen. The entire city and everything in it was going to be given over to God. That's what this level of justice was called. Just send everybody to the presence of God and let him sort this thing out in an act of destruction. Oh. But here's what the word said brought that about. The sins of the Amorites had finally reached their full measure. And the scales of justice were now tipped. And the remedy was being implemented. You know, God has his limits. That's part that we're supposed to see in the story too. And Justice Day comes. 
It's like, uh, it's tragic. You know, when your doctor tells you something like this, you know, the cancer has metastasized and it has spread and it has gotten so strong that my recommendation, we have to kill everything. We have to kill every part of it. We have to use every treatment to kill every part of it. We're gonna use radiation. We're gonna use amputative surgery. We're gonna hit severe chemotherapy. We're gonna bring it all, but we cannot let it spread any longer. And that's like the assessment that Yahweh God is bringing on the Amorites after hundreds and hundreds of years. He's bringing justice to the wickedness of the Amorites. Now, what had they done? That's what we wanna know, right? Whoa, What had they done? Well, the lists vary among scholars, but the summary over those hundreds of years fall into three categories, basically. First, there's just the practice of intense idolatry. People were making their own gods, being their own gods, you know, worshiping false gods, and so intense idolatry was part of it. Second, the fertility practices, the fertility religions of those false gods practiced regular ritual prostitution and sexual immorality was rampant in their culture, in their religion, and over those time, that time. Third, detestable violence was being practiced throughout the land, even to the point of child sacrifice. You know, it's hard to even say that one, but people were sacrificing their babies to the god Moloch, and babies were being killed. And it's like moral filth, sexual immorality, and brutality was being practiced culturally and had gone on so long that now God says, hey, time's up. Long enough. And we see throughout the Bible story that that does happen. God said it in Noah's day. Noah, time's up, build the ark, you know, He sent the flood of justice against the wickedness of earth. In Egypt, Egypt where Israel had just come from, a host of false gods, but in their exodus coming out of slavery, God challenges every one of the false gods, brings them down before them, and then takes them out. And now God was going to do justice against the Amorites. And it's like everybody in Jericho already knew before the spies even got there. And Rahab, uh, somehow they just had this, hey, time's up. (laughs) Whoa, time's up. Rahab uh, sure did. And not that she was a sterling example of pious devotion. (laughs) You read the story, what you discover is she's a practiced prostitute. Maybe she was one of those who were serving the false gods in the practices I just told you about. But somehow she knew that God's clock was about to strike midnight. And the proud, self-indulgent, Ancient city of Jericho was about to meet its maker. I mean, the the dream that had been Jericho was going to turn, the self-indulgent dream that had been Jericho was about to turn into a nightmare of accountability. And they were going to have to face the music, which raises this question. Can we just hit the pause button for a second on the side here? Um, If God gave you a heads up like that, The time was up, either for you or for your city or for your nation, that the day of accountability had come. What would you do? I mean, who would you call? What would be your next step, right? Who would you care about? I mean, are there people that you love that you would be trying to get into safety? 
That's what the story is inviting us to wonder about. That's Rahab's situation. So here's what she does. She tries to cut a deal with the spies that are coming in as part of this justice movement. And he, she says, since I've been kind to you, will you be kind to me? And the spies say, of course, yes. Our lives for your lives. In other words, we're not just talking here. You know, this is life and death, and you can trust our honor that our lives are on the line just as yours is. And they promise, they say, mercy will meet you in the eye of the storm. Just tie this scarlet cord in the window out of your apartment that lets us down, and everybody in your house will be spared. Your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, all your family. But listen, anybody outside your house, their blood is on their own heads. Okay? We can't save them. So what do you think she did? I mean, what would you do? I think she started trying to figure out how many she could squeeze into her house. You know, let's see. How many relatives do I have? How many friends do I have? How much room do I have? How many, how, what am I going to do now, you know? And she started counting them out. Let's see. Mom, dad, all my brothers, all my sisters, my nieces, my nephew, all the family that I've got. Is that what you would do? You know, how, how would that happen? We're, how did she do it? Just try to get him out of harm's way. How would she do it? Well, we're not, we're not really told how she would do it, but I'm thinking two things at least would be involved. She would make contact and have conversations. That would have to happen, right? For her family and her loved ones to get inside, she would have to get outside. She would have to make contact and then have conversations in order to say, hey, you know, uh, and then try to bring them into the story which may actually bring up some uncomfortable topics that would sound a little bit strange to them, like this. Can you imagine this? She's now sitting at her dad's table and trying to breach the conversation for the first time. Well, you know what, Dad? It all started when two men I'd never met came to my house. Oh, wait, stop right there. Because the rest of this story may not be something Dad wants to hear in light of the profession that his daughter was involved in. See what I mean? It, it could get awkward pretty quick. And... Uh, in Rahab's line of work, was that really a, an unusual occurrence? So my point is, in order to get her family in, she was going to have to get out, make contact, and have some difficult conversations, some crucial conversations, maybe push through some discomfort and then uh, some shame, some personal issues to let the, her love for them be more important and move her to a new level of truth-telling, no, listen to me. I can see her pushing back on her dad. Now, listen to me. These men were followers of the God of heaven and the God of earth. It's not what you're thinking, dad. And this is the God that parted the Red Sea so that they could get out of Egypt. This is the same God who wiped out Sihon and Og. You know, everybody's talking about that. How did that happen? What's going on? And now this God has brought them here. They're knocking on our door right now. And so judgment is knocking at the door. But, listen, listen, they promised me that everybody I could get in my house would be spared. As long as I have this little scarlet cord hanging out my window. Now, wait a minute. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to listen to you, honey. But you got to explain to me, how is a red piece of fabric going to protect us from the justice of the God of heaven and earth? Just explain that to me. That sounds ridiculous. 
right? And so what does she say? I don't know. They didn't bother trying to explain that to me. I just know that they said, if I have this hanging out my window, and if it's true, then I know that I want you in my house with me. That's why I'm here. I want my family safe in the storm. Now, we don't know if that's how it happened. Maybe she actually started a conversation with a sister because nobody else was talking to her. Maybe it started with a nephew because her brothers had already thrown her out. You know, you know how hard family relations can be in light of choices that we make. All I'm trying to say is, if she's going to get them in, if she's going to take this seriously, she's going to have to get out, she's going to have to make contact, and she's going to have to have some conversations. And that could be challenging, but here's the point. To get them in, she's going to have to get out. If you understand that, would you say amen? Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Now, and th- what else? Well, she would have to make room for them in her house because that's the deal, right? Got to get into the house. Now, archaeology has actually uncovered ruins of the city of Jericho. And we can gather from that, some of those ruin scenes, how large of a space she might have had. We don't know which was hers. We just know that her apartment was right on the wall so she could hang that scarlet cord out the window and they could get down and get out from her apartment. But I'm thinking she probably started taking measurements and started thinking about, well, I got my family. This is a dozen, 22, And so I don't know how many people I can squeeze in here, but you know what? I don't need this furniture. (laughs) I don't need that bed. I don't need that dresser. We're going to, okay, I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to get rid of that. If we empty every room and then get somebody in every room, you know, maybe I could get my family in. I'm going to get all my family, especially the ones I want. We'll get them in first. And then then the in-laws and the outlaws are going to come in. And then maybe if we got room, you know, we'll put my brother Uh, you know what I'm saying. If the storm is going to be as bad as they say, if, if all of my family that I can get in is going to be safe, then you know what? I don't care about my furniture. I care about my family. So what matters more than anything is squeezing all the people in and making as much room as possible for people to get in. Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see where this is going? You know what Jesus said? We're a Christ Journey Church. We help people find and follow Christ. Would you follow Christ with me for a moment? Do you know what Jesus said? He said one day every person who has ever borrowed God's breath in this life is going to give account for everything done in the body. Jesus said this, everyone will have to give account. Justice day is coming, the day of judgment. And not only of the deeds done in the body, here's where it gets scary, especially for somebody like me, but for every careless word that they've spoken. Now, I'd like to cut that verse out of my Bible, but there it is. The book of Revelation says that on Justice Day, on Judgment Day, every person who has ever lived, ever borrowed God's breath, and has now died, all of those who have died are now going to stand before the throne of God and are being, giving account for what they have done. And the books that are open before God are going to record everything done in your life. Skeptics used to say, now that's not going to, how does that happen? And now in a world of the digital age where once it winds up online, it never goes away. Suddenly we're not asking that question anymore. Jesus said we're all living at risk. That's what I want us to see. Every person is at risk. At risk of what? At risk of facing the consequences of our sins eternally. At risk of being stuck in consequences of real guilt 
This is what Jesus said. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many are on it. He said that in the first sermon, message sermon on the mount. But narrow is the way that leads to life. You know what? This is why we say this around here. People are dying. Lives are in the balance. Families are on the brink. Eternity is at stake. Because judgment day is coming, and there is such a thing as too late. There is such a thing as waiting too long to respond. Sometimes we tell ourselves, no, I got plenty of time. And then we'll see something on the news about a young person dying. I'm not going to go there right now. But I'm telling you this, Jesus promised he's coming again someday. And by my reading of Scripture, the signs of the second coming, he said, I'm going to send signs ahead of the way so that you'll be sure and know so that you can get ready for my arrival. And um, I believe it could happen any day. Look what Paul said about it, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. This is right before the coming of Christ, the last days, right? People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful. You owe me unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, we tell lies about others, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, say one thing, do another, hurt people, rash, because I felt like it, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Now, those to me don't sound like signs of the end. That's like daily headlines. So what are we supposed to do? If Jesus could come back, if in fact he were coming back and this were a heads up, that, hey, time's up and it's time to get ready, what would you do? Well, you'd probably look for the scarlet cord if you knew where it was. Symbolically, here's the answer to that. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world that is in trouble of getting stuck in the consequences of our own misguided, self-interested guilt. And uh, today is the day, if you're searching spiritually for an answer to that question, today is the day of salvation. Today you can trust Jesus as the scarlet cord. Where did it come from? He's the one symbolized there because when judgment came to Egypt, It was the ones who were told, if you put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, then when the judging angel comes, it will pass over your house. And so Passover came from that experience of the the displayed blood over the house. In the New Testament, we're told in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, of your world, of my world, of my life, of your life. He has died for the whole world, and his blood is the scarlet fountain. Jesus, or Paul says this, God will cover you. Trust him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Doesn't want, God doesn't want to condemn you. That's why I said, I'm not here to judge you. God doesn't want to condemn you. God wants you to know he's got you covered. But as long as you're holding on to the scarlet cord, and that's what we celebrate in communion because Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the new covenant, which is 
been poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So what are we supposed to do to get ready for that day? Well, you're supposed to trust him and tie the scarlet cord outside your window, the window of your soul. You allow a display to show that someone has come to visit and has made his presence known in scarlet. Now, maybe you're a believer. What should you do? How about this one? Be like Rahab. Be like Rahab. You're already inside. You've had the conversation, but you want to get as many people as possible into God's safe house as soon as possible, right? What's done for me, I can help do for others. And so we got to share the message so others can know that Jesus is the way of salvation. Jesus is the safe house. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, laid my life down for the sheep. The good shepherd leaves the 99, goes, finds the one, and then there's great rejoicing in heaven. It's not like little Bo Peep shepherd, you know. Little Bo Peep, she lost her sheep. She didn't know where to find them, so she just left them alone, and they'll come home. No, that's not how it works. Sheep don't tend to find their own way home. Now, I know you don't wanna, you're not a sheep, but is God wrong when he says, we all get by with a little help from our friends? When God wanted to place a safe house in the midst of a coming storm, Rahab was willing to listen and act. Did the same thing with Noah. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. And I will make a safe place for people who will bring faith to their loved ones. What can you do? Well, how do I summarize it real quickly? You start thinking about your loved ones, right? You make a list. How many are there? How many could I be praying for? How many would I want in? If God gave me opportunity to help others, who would I leave out? So you make a list of your family, a list of your friends, you know? How many would that be? I don't know. Here's how many Ryan Reed has in his immediate family. You know, if he was Rahab, he'd be counting names and saying, well, you go there, you go there, you go there. And here's David Weidman. This is how many Dave has in his Look at that. Oh, my goodness. How many in yours? And wouldn't you want, in light of the storm, wouldn't you like to say, hey, the day after the walls fell, we all just came right out of our little safe house together because you know what? Rahab wanted us to be with her. Don't they matter more than your stuff? Then what is it that God wants you to do? You're going to have to make contact. You're going to have to get, if you want to get them in, you got to get out, right? This isn't just about you coming to church. This is about you making friends with your loved ones, making contact, and then having conversations and engaging the opportunity. And then when it gets difficult and it feels a little awkward, it's you learning how love can keep pushing the conversation forward and saying, no, 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 don't, I'm not going to give up that easy. Here's what's happening for me. When I go there, I leave with, I just feel lighter when I leave. Just tell your story. Keep it real. Just, here's what happens to me, and here's why I keep going back. And I would love for you to be with me. Just come try it. Maybe that's the first thing. Maybe the conversation starts as an invitation, or then you just tell your story. Or then you say something like this, I'm learning, I'm growing, I don't know all the answers to all the questions, but I would love to find some. Just, if you'll let me write your questions down, then I'll go look for some answers. It's just engaging the conversation, right? And, and then, or you could just start carrying invitation cards. We have them available here so that we can be inviters to bring other people in. 
Jesus said that there is huge joy in heaven when one person who's been far from God finds their way home to God. And Jesus wants us to get to be part of the huge joy that that represents. So I'd like you to consider this prayer. Got any empty chairs around you? See any empty chairs in the room? Wherever you're joining us from? Kindle Campus, you got any empty chairs around you out there? What if you were to say this, Lord, when it comes to Christ's journey, I'd just like you to know, I'll be there and count on me to uh, try to fill that empty chair. It rhymes so that I'm hoping you'll remember it. Lord, I'll be there and count on me for that empty chair. That what if this was your safe house and what if you could invite somebody, not all your somebody's on the same day, but one at a time over the weeks and forward, you know, what if you just, what if God could use you to be a Rahab and going to church just wasn't about you. It was about, Lord, I'll be there and count on me to fill that empty chair because we're making room. We're making more room at Kendall. We're making more room at Gables. We're making more room because we're transferring to the beach. We're making room, but it's a movement. We gotta move with God. So I'd like to invite you to ask God what's your part in the movement. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you that you left heaven to clothe yourself in humanity and then find your way to the cross so that that scarlet, that healing scarlet presence could be ours. Now we pray that you would, as you're prompting our minds to think of our loved ones and our friends and our family members and, and those that you might use us to help find their way to you. It's such a dangerous world. Would you use us to help others find a safe house in it, this safe house? And maybe for somebody right now, you responded to an invitation from a friend and this is that day that you would like to find safety in God's presence. Then may I offer a prayer and invite you to join me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were on that cross as God in love for me that you shed your blood that my sins might be forgiven and that I not be stuck in the consequences of my guilt. And you rose from the dead so that your life could come alive in me. So I open my heart that your spirit, I welcome your spirit to come into me. Cleanse me, forgive my sins, now lead me as I start walking with you. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, our heads are still bowed for a moment and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith. Would you simply raise your hands wherever you're seated? Thank you. To my right, there toward the back, God bless you. Amen. To my left, over toward the edge, amen. Kendall Campus, our pastor's watching right now. Church Online, you can click that banner right there. We're praying. You know what we want to do? We want to squeeze as many people in as we can. And we're welcoming each one of you today who just by raised hand, Lord, would your spirit fill them with peace and start developing the strength of your joy as they become part of our family. In your name we pray, amen.